0: You feel peckish, and so you walk over to the fridge and take a look to see what's there to snack on. There's a nice juicy apple and some fresh orange juice. Just what you feel like. There are so many things that I do every day that I don't always think about. The reality is that even if my fridge was bare, I would Mm. hop into my car and drive to the closest grocery store to get something to eat. Welcome. I'm Dombini Marengani, host of Season 3 of the Just for a Change podcast. If you've been following this series, you'll know that I have conversations with changemakers from South Africa and further afield. In this final episode of Season 3, we're going to be hearing more about an incredibly inspiring and collaborative approach to tackling one of the biggest issues in the Global South hunger and malnutrition. According to international organization Action Against Hunger, there are nearly 800 million people in the world who still go hungry, and this has only been exacerbated by the impacts and aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic. There is a difference between hunger and malnutrition. Researchers at Johns Hopkins University define hunger as the distress caused by a lack of food which disappears when we're able to eat enough food to be satisfied. Malnutrition is the absence of nutrients needed for proper health and development. Hunger and malnutrition go hand in hand. Did you know that obesity is a form of malnutrition? And it's important to understand the link between easily accessible, cheap food and obesity. Not all people who are obese choose that way of eating. It is merely what they can afford. And so it's not simply about making sure that people have food but they have access to good quality and nutritious food. The impacts of malnutrition are not just physical, but are far-reaching, and it's important to see that the whole picture is greater than the sum of all its complex parts. Someone who understands this better than many is our guest today. Professor Gisela Solimos is a change maker and innovator within the health sector. She's the co-founder and former CEO of the Center for Nutritional Recovery and Education, an organization based in Sao Paulo, Brazil, that has done tremendous work in alleviating hunger, malnutrition, and all the associated complex issues, such as the psychological impacts of hunger. She's also the co-founder of Catalyst 2023, a fast-growing movement of people and organizations who are committed to achieving the UN Sustainable Development Goals by 2030, A psychologist by training, Gisela has been recognized as an Ashoka Senior Fellow, a Schwab Foundation Social Entrepreneur, and as an Ernst & Young Social Entrepreneur of the Year in 2011 and 2012. Just a note before we dive into this conversation, we'd love to hear from you. Please pop us an email with your stories of change-making work, or if there's someone you'd like to suggest as a guest, let us know. You can email us at birthacenter.gsb at uct.ac.za. Let's dive right into that conversation now. Welcome, Gisela.
1: Thanks for having me here in Tombini. I'm very excited about this conversation. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what shaped you. I think there are two elements to respond to it. The first one is that uh, poverty is something that has always bothered me my whole life since I was a very small kid. I remember walking on an avenue with my mom. And for the first time in my life, maybe I was four or five, I saw someone on the streets begging. It was a family. There was also uh, there were children. And I asked my mom, mom why are they he- here? I don't understand what's happening. And she said, oh, I, I think they don't have enough to eat, so they need to ask for it. And since then, I started dreaming. I couldn't sleep. I would dream awake thinking about how to solve the the problem of, of hunger in the world. But actually, that's curious. I've never thought about working on this. And uh, I am a psychologist, and I was doing my clinic. My clinic was going so-so because it was at the beginning. And so I got this part-time job to do a research on nutrition and socioeconomic status of families living in, in favelas, in slums in Brazil, in Sao Paulo. And that's when it really started. And uh, this was like maybe more than 25 years after that first impact I had. So that's how how it started. We did the research and and four years after doing research and developing a methodology to treat malnourished children in slums, on the field, there was nothing like that at that time, we started CREM, our center to recover malnourished children. That's quite
0: interesting. I'm curious about what led you to focus on the nutrition aspect of the poverty that you witnessed when you were growing up?
1: This was a given. This research was uh, conducted by a professor at the university. She was she a physiologist. She would study malnutrition physiology. And the other professor, she was a pediatrician, and she would study malnutrition in kids, in children, right? So I, I didn't take this decision. But when I started working... I thought the amazing nutrition is really amazing for many different aspects because it deals with the whole person, with the body, but also with the way of living. Therefore, with the emotions, with the psychology, with everything else. And also, malnutrition is a marker. It signs the poor, poorest families in in a poor environment. So. Uh, anyone who works with poverty knows that whenever uh, you, you will have a poor community, even there, you have people poorer than other people. You can uh, have a, um, uh, you can stratify it. And malnutrition signs the, the families who are suffering the most. So it's good. It demands a holistic type of intervention. And also it helps us to focus on those who need more attention in a poor community.
0: That's very helpful to think about it. Poverty, as you say, has its different levels and people who are living in poverty are not a monolith. They have different characteristics, different socioeconomic backgrounds that have led them to that path. You mentioned now that you started CRIN, the Center for Nutritional Recovery and Education in Sao Paulo. Can you tell us a bit more about how you started?
1: Yes. We were a group of, of people researching malnutrition, right? And those two professors I mentioned before, Ana Ligia Sawaya and Dirce Sigulen, they had also applied for a grant to build a center to recover malnourished children in Sao Paulo. Making a long story short, the this, this center was built with um, resources from the Ministry of External Affairs of Italy. It's a grant from international cooperation for the Italian government. And uh, when the center was built, these professors asked me to be the manager, the general manager of it. For me, it was a surprise, and uh, but I took it. I was completely involved with. The, I, I had at that time left my clinic, and I was completely involved with the work with malnutrition and fighting poverty in slums in São Paulo. So I accepted it, although I, I thought I wasn't, um, I didn't have the, the skills enough to do that. And that was a, a beautiful adventure to discover how to conduct this work with the team and, and everything else.
0: So what are some of the things that you had to learn quickly in order to do
1: your job well? I had to learn many different things. I had to learn administration because I hadn't studied it. I didn't have enough knowledge about nutrition or education in health. So I asked friends of um, nurse friends, pediatricians, nutritionists to, to come and help me to build the program we had at the center. I had to learn how to do HR management, strategic planning, and everything. As we would grow, I would have to develop everything from scratch. As a psychologist, I decided to start uh, looking at the mothers. I wanted to start giving them some consultancies because they were in deep suffering. I would invite them for a consultancy and would say, hello, good morning, how are you doing? I'm Giselle, I'm a psychologist. And I would ask them, do you know what a psychologist is? And they would say, no. <laughs> so starting at the very beginning. As a psychologist, I had to learn again how to deal with the population very deprived from everything, excluded actually. There I learned the difference between exclusion and marginalization. Marginalization is where, when you are at the margins, but you are inside. But when you are excluded, it's something completely different. And, and that was a, a beautiful adventure to discover and, and learn how to, to help in this area. That's incredible.
0: Can you tell me a bit more
1: about the work that Crane does? Well, Crane is a center to recover malnourished children and we work at, at different levels. We assist these children in the hospital, outpatient clinics, and at the community. We go to their houses and, and, and see do pediatric uh, consultancies or nutritional consultancies. We also train professionals from our primary health care in Brazil. Here I need to do a parenthesis. Brazil has a very structured healthcare system. It's divided in primary health care, secondary health care, tertiary and quaternary, depending if it's something very generic or it, if it's something more specialized. CREM is at the second level of attention. And then we train people who are in the first level of, of health attention in order for them to learn how to identify malnourished children, nutritional problems, and to address it at the primary level. We also do research, and so we have developed methodologies, but also we have evaluated the methodologies we have developed. And we learned many things about malnutrition and how to recover malnourished children with our research even breaking some paradigms in science in this in this area. We teach students all the work we do recovering malnourished children is done with the children and with the families, doing nutritional education workshops, assisting them in the day hospital where they stay the whole day from morning to to afternoon, and they have five meals, nutritional education, edu- pedagogical education. In order to help them to develop and to grow as normal children again,
0: your approach at CREN is multi layered and really takes the system into consideration. You've expressed a deliberate approach as seeing the whole child, right? The child is not just an individual, they're part of a family, they're part of a community. And even getting to the point where you could put all the things in place. You needed to make your programs work. You had to adopt quite a collaborative approach. Can you
1: tell us more about how this all came about? I think everything started with us willing to respond to the reality as it is. I give you an example. I told you that uh, I wanted to uh, work as a psychologist and help families with their psychological suffering. But at the very beginning, I understood that the this method, this psychological methodology I had learned at university didn't, didn't work, right? So responding to reality, we would see, for instance, that um, children that we would assist in our day hospital, they would eat more protein than that was recommended by WHO, the World Health Organization. That uh, for them to come to the day hospital regularly, we had to involve the families. So, we couldn't just focus on children. We had to focus also and involve the families. Otherwise, this nutritional recovery wouldn't be sustainable. But then, working with nutritional recovery, so you have, when you work with the families and you want to change their behaviors, you need to understand why they are behaving like that. And then you need to address human relationships you need to address cultural values or preconceptions, but also you need to address poverty. So our social workers were very key, very important to help these families to have access to social benefits that they did not have access because they were excluded. But then when we start working and dealing with the uh, healthcare professionals uh, that were also assisting these children on the field, we realized that the criteria, they, for instance, they would use to uh, identify, diagnose a malnourished child was not the same that we used. We would measure height, stature to identify malnourished children. And um, WHO and also primary health care, the whole health care system in Brazil didn't, did not use this criteria for many reasons, scientific reasons. So we started to promote uh, seminars inviting the federal government and inviting uh, the the local government to scientifically discuss how do we diagnose a, a malnourished child. Therefore, if you really want to address the problem you're addressing, you start amplifying and you start a dialogue with many different actors and many different stakeholders that are also dealing with the problem, and then they can either help you to deal with the problem, or if you are not aligned, and if you don't have an agreement on how to do that, then you you guys, um, you don't help each other, and the problem is not addressed. So that's how we we evolved until we have influenced public policies, and we still do this up to, to now. Uh, at, at the federal government level, but also at the local government level.
0: I think what you've what you've just explained is is very important, and that's that change cannot happen in a vacuum, right? So, just shifting now for a moment, I wanted to ask you. It's because it's important for us to understand the impacts of generational trauma when it comes to working in under-resourced communities, can you perhaps talk to me a little bit more about how you encounter that in the communities
1: where Kren serves? That question moves me because when you work with malnutrition, in my case, it's not necessarily always like that. You can have a crisis and all of a sudden you have everybody that becomes malnourished. But you are, if you are working in a country like Brazil or maybe countries, some countries in Africa, or um, we have this intergenerational poverty. And, and therefore, it's an intergenerational suffering. And this suffering is suffering in your body and is suffering psychological, maybe in your soul even, I would say. How, how does this suffering happen in your body? If you are malnourished, when you're a child, you don't grow well. You don't grow the full, your full genetic potential, right? And therefore, you have, you can, if you're a woman, you generate a malnourished child. And so you have the cycle. But also, you, you have uh, other disease in your adulthood because, especially women, but also men, when they, they do not grow their full potential, they become, they, they are more likely to be Uh, to have diabetes, to become obese, to have hypertension, or to have heart diseases. Therefore, it's what we call non-communicable diseases, right? So you are sick, you are ill when you are a child, and and if you are malnourished, you have uh, infections that are repeated. So you also don't um, interact fully as a child, And therefore, you lose the windows of opportunity to learn and to develop, right? It's not that you have neurological problems. You do not have physiological problems in terms of of the brain. But uh, you interacted less than than a normal child. And therefore, you lose these opportunities there. So uh, also, your performance in schools is more likely to be lower than the other kids. And so on, and so forth. And you don't develop your body. You don't learn well. And not developing your body, your work, especially with these families, uh, you produce less in your work. I give you an example: workers in sugarcane field. They when they they cut, uh, they are paid to cut sugarcane, right? Whenever they have, uh, uh, usually are men. Uh, if they are one point sixty five uh, meters or high or higher than this, they cut like 10 tons of sugarcane per day. And therefore, they are able to gain more money because they have a minimum that they need to cut and, and they get an extra and they get, let's say, richer. But if you have less than 155 meters, uh, you cut less sugarcane, you get less money, but also you're not able to do the whole season of the harvest, right? So this is one aspect. But the other aspect is also that I give you a very uh, concrete example. Now I'm working in a very poor city in the state of Alagoas. We are trying to address poverty, addressing food insecurity. And so we are interviewing families and and knowing the reality. And I met this girl. She's like 16, 16, 17. She's about to finish high school, which is an achievement here, because usually people do not finish high school here. And then I asked her, so what are you going to do? What do you want to study? What do you want to work with? She said, oh, I am going to be a domestic worker doing cleaning in the house of, of other people. That's what she foresees for herself. So the other aspect is that I don't see a future for myself I it's like that's that's how life is. And so this this uh wound for me is even deeper, even even more painful than the wounds that they have in their bodies and they will be sick for their whole life, right? Um but uh, but the, the let's say the spiritual the, the wound in the soul is something that uh, needs to be addressed when you work with malnutrition.
0: Absolutely. And that, that leads me to ask you to share with us a bit more about your experience on the intersectionality between mental health
1: and malnutrition. Poverty is a sequence of failures to, to realize all the, the beautiful things you dream about your life. So you feel like demoralized and feeling like that probability for these families to have psychological and psychiatric problems is higher than you have in other with people with other socioeconomic status so it's more likely that you have depression that you have anxiety that you also need to get some medicines to address all the stress that poverty puts on you because you are also exposed to more violent environments you feel lonely you, you feel powerlessness uh, and you feel fatalist. You don't think, you don't see a way to get out of there. So this is all the burden, the psychological burden that comes with poverty and especially with malnutrition because uh, this is even more present and in, in families with malnourished children. The way, in our experience, the way to deal with this, as I told you at the beginning, is not just giving psychological consultancies. Because it's not, a, it's not a matter of saying, oh, uh, let's say, let's pretend I'm talking to Nintombi. Oh, Nintombi, don't, don't worry. Things will be okay. Trust me, uh, you you feel better. And we, we talk about your problems and you feel better. You need to have concrete experiences that uh, help you to start learning, to start seeing that change is possible in your life. That's why it's so important to, to do things together with the families, to bring them to workshops, to have them sharing the experiences and, and building new things together. Uh, even if it's cooking a dish, it doesn't matter, anything that shows you that you have assets, that you have value, and, uh, and, and that if you work on your own assets like whatever, you know, how to cook, how to soup, or th- things can start changing. We once had um, a child, the malnourished child, and his family, it was a family with five children, two of them were malnourished. They didn't have bathroom in their house. So, in order to use the loo or to take a shower, they had to ask for the neighbor. We started our intervention t- 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 um, telling to the mom, mom, you need to look at the, the way you are feeding your child, you need to look at the way he's eating so he can recover, and she, she would answer us, oh, but I need a bathroom, right? Why, why would she insist on this? Because she would say, it's humiliating to go every time with five kids at house, at my house. You can imagine how many times per day we go to the neighbor and ask them her permission to use her bathroom. So, I feel humiliated every single time. This mom, she wouldn't take a shower herself, and she would smell to give the chance for her kids to, to, to use the, the bathroom of her neighbor. Whenever we were able to, to build a very small bathroom in her house with, a, with another project, we succeeded to, to have another a small, very small grant, very small grant. She changed it completely. She had hope again. And she changed also the way she would look at the, the way she was feeding her children. She, it's like a, a new life has started, if you understand what I mean. So it's also a, a matter of uh, knowing that things can change, but knowing concretely that things can change.
0: Do you find sometimes that in, in promoting space for agencies of the different stakeholders to um, unfold, do you find that that at any time conflicts with your
1: mission? Yes, I do find it because I think one immense um, challenge we have whenever we are trying to address poverty, I think anywhere in the world, is our prejudice, our own prejudice, my preconceptions of what, like, like the example I gave, my preconception was and, and it wasn't a wrong one, it was a right one, because the boy was malnourished, right? But my preconception was, this is the most important and urgent thing that we need to address with this family now, right? And we need to be open to review our preconceptions. And, and this is okay, we have preconceptions, and we if we are open to review them, okay, no problems. But the problem is that when I do have my preconceptions, and I, I, I think I'm right, <laughs> And, and I think the fact that, as I told you in the beginning, I didn't know how to do this job, it was it was an advantage for me because I'm always asking. I'm up to now after 33 years, I still think I don't know how to do this job, and I I need I feel the need to ask. Right? Whenever we don't feel this need, we 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 are not able to know reality, and therefore we are not able to do right intervention. You've talked a little bit about some of the challenges that
0: you face in this work, but from my own curiosity, you haven't mentioned, you haven't emphasized that much about money. And I'm really curious as to um, how
1: is that possible? <laughs> that's, that's a great question. I love it. Um, and I think um, I haven't because the way I, I always work is, is about, um, maybe I'll get there, maybe I'll get to uh, the money stuff, but before, mm. before needing extra money, you need to be able to fully use the resources you already have in place. i give you an example. I was talking with one of the secretaries of this um, municipal government, of the city government, okay? And uh, he was telling me how he feels how it hurts him thinking about people in his city that do not have what to eat and that hunger is a very massive suffering. And his his biggest desire would be to build uh, a popular restaurant where people could go and eat for free. I told him, but, uh, and what about if instead of you using this money to build this restaurant, you use this money to help people to cultivate food in their gardens and so they do not depend on your restaurant because in a couple of years whenever you are not in this government as, anymore the, the next the next mayor or secretary will close this restaurant what i want to say with this example is that the city is a very poor city with very small assets but they do have assets and the first step is how are we foreseeing solutions for this community? How are we using the assets we have? The first approach they all have there is that because you are poor, I need to give you things because you're poor and so you don't have. No, (laughs) I, I I have this as a poor person, considered poor because of my income, of my total income. That's how we measure poverty, which is, and not a good way to measure poverty because income it doesn't show actual poverty and therefore i just see what i think you should have and you don't have but then i don't see what you have as a poor person you have a house maybe you have a garden maybe you know how to do something maybe you whatever you have a a strong network or a, some knowledge that is useful for other people right and so that's why um I didn't get to the, to the problem of needing extra funds to promote things there. Also, because whenever you use an extra fund, it needs to be in order to activate something that is already there. And whenever you get this fund out, whenever this fund finishes, the thing you, you started needs to go ahead. Right. And I think this is a massive challenge we have in our projects, too. There's one thing where I think we do need extra money, which is education, our public education, right? Because it's an investment. We need to reinvent the way we do schools. We need to train our teachers. I mean, we should review everything. But I can't do this myself in this city because this is a super big problem. You've mentioned the
0: value of research in your work. How do you think this has impacted the development of the
1: programs run by CRIN? I'll give you an, an example from my from my field, right? When we started, as I told you, everything started before CRIN as a, a field work conducted by university, right? To know the socioeconomic status and nutritional status of families living in slums. And we were based at the university and so we had scientific discussions with other scholars pediatricians, nutritionists, psychologists, psychiatrists. So we had, uh, every Thursday, we had these scientific discussions from many subjects related to nutrition or malnutrition. Let's say in this environment, uh, many people were working with malnourished children, and one of these scholars uh, came up with uh, this theory saying, this hypothesis, he would say, hey guys, look, uh, we have in a family with, me, different, with many children, we have children that are malnourished and children that are not malnourished. And usually the mothers are obese. Therefore, probably malnutrition is related to the way the mother is bonded or not to her children. The, the mom loves malnourished children less than she loves the other children because she doesn't feed them because she's obese. There's food at how, at the house, and therefore, these children are not fed. And I said, oh, but wait a minute. I, I don't see this on the field. I, we have interviewed 530 families, 2,500 people. So I, had, I was seeing some people. I was seeing some situations. And so I decided to conduct my master's studying the experience of moms of malnourished children. And so this was a qualitative study. And what I found out is that those mothers knew perfectly all the context that was promoting malnutrition in their families, but they couldn't face the fact they loved the, their children so much that they couldn't accept the fact that they were malnourished. Like they, the, like they had a veil on, on their face. They wouldn't look to this reality directly. And also, they they were fatalists, they didn't know how to, they they think things would not change, and they were powerlessness, and they were lonely. This study helped us to to completely change the way we were approaching the families. uh, As I was telling before, we understood it wasn't a problem of depression or anxiety, it was a problem of concretely learning how to deal with the challenges that life, the poverty gives to me, extreme poverty gives to me, how do I deal with, with these kind of challenges and this completely changed our approach and allowed us to establish a stronger bond with uh, those families so they would stay in our services. Other services that were treating malnourished children, they, they were not able to keep these families coming, they would, the families would give up and they wouldn't actively search for these families to come back so we changed the methodology based on this research. We were able to keep the families with us. And keeping the families, the, treat, the children treated for more than two years, we found out that it was possible to recover stature, to recover height. She said, you're a well-recognized
0: social entrepreneur. Why do you think social entrepreneurship is important?
1: I think social entrepreneurs have many... Uh, that uh, make them essential to, to face the, today's challenges. First, we are on the field. Second, we are free in, in terms of we are not attached to any role that we're, like, governments, they need to perform in a certain, in certain, in certain way. We, we don't. We are committed, we are complete, because, because we're completely focused on the problem that we want to to solve. We are open to dialogue with different stakeholders, uh, and we are able to do that. If you look at Crane's example, we we dialogue with the university, with governments, also with companies from different types, with the community, we have this transit and we are able to dialogue with, with everyone. And therefore, we are able to innovate and bring real innovation because we are looking to the field in this broader way and uh, dialoguing with everyone. We are able to see solutions that people haven't seen before. Given the complexity that we're faced with Gisela,
0: in just a few words, how do you think we can move towards a more
1: just and equitable world? I think we need a, a very... Very key but simple elements. See ourselves in the picture. Be willing to give up on something and be willing to collaborate.
0: Thank you so much, Gisela, for sharing your story with us. Um, your dedication to this work is so inspiring and encouraging. And to see the impact of someone who has done the work right in front of her and the way that it's grown to have global reach and impact. Um, has just been a wonderful experience. Thank you so much for your
1: time today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm sure you'll agree
0: with me that this has been such an inspiring season of the Just for Change podcast. We've heard from 12 changemakers from the global South who are working tirelessly towards a more just and equitable world. It's hard not to feel encouraged by their stories. In July, we celebrate Mandela Day in South Africa, and I'm reminded of something he said. Quote, you can start changing the world daily, no matter how small the action, unquote. And this rings true as I reflect on the guests I've spoken to this season. They are hopeful despite every reason not to be, making small changes to the world around them every day. And all of these small, consistent changes really do add up. May that keep us all inspired to keep changing the way we're changing the world. Thank you for tuning into season three of the Just For a Change podcast, powered by the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship. We'll be back soon with a new season of this podcast and can't wait to share it with you. If you're interested in hearing more conversations with changemakers, then make sure you subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. If you've enjoyed this content, I'd also like to invite you to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast. And feel free to share it with your friends, family and colleagues. Let's stay inspired and keep changing the way we're changing the world.